Oxbus. Hey everybody, thank you for joining me on episode 131 of The Virtual Couch. I'm your host, Tony Overbay, licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, writer, speaker, husband, father of four, ultra marathon runner, and creator of The Path Back, an online pornography addiction recovery program that is helping people put their lives in order, put pornography behind them once and for all. And uh, if you or anyone that you know is struggling to put pornography in their rearview mirror or any type of compulsive sexual behavior, even if they don't think that it's a problem, point them over to pathbackrecovery.com. There you'll find a short ebook that describes five common mistakes that people make when trying to put pornography behind them. Again, that's pathbackrecovery.com. So I'm trying a little something new. This is something that I've wanted to do um, for a long time. And that is just kind of talk uh, off the cuff about something that I have done a lot of work around, maybe something I'm a little bit passionate about. And that is the the whole topic of pornography. Is it an addiction? Is it not an addiction? Does it matter if we call it an addiction? Um, is it a little bit good? Is it not good at all? What does the data say? Is this just like a bunch of, uh, you know, is it a witch hunt? Um, but w- all things about uh, pornography, pornography addiction, compulsive sexual behavior, that sort of thing. And, uh, and I've, I've gotten, I mean, I get questions. I can almost say literally every day about, um, people who struggle with addiction, uh, pornography, that sort of thing. And so uh, the reason why I said I've always wanted to do this is, um, I, I kind of, have, I've written them down. I've, I've got answers, but a lot of times I just want to kind of speak again off the cuff and just talk about the things that I see in my practice. Um, and just what and, and what what the research says and and just practical applications of how to put these things behind you and uh, to be fair I just haven't done it and I, I was presented with a um, it's a program a software program it's a, a new podcast recording program and um, and it kind of puts all these things together for you so quite frankly I thought this was the perfect opportunity to give this a try so it, this program that I'm using, you record in bits. I just recorded my intro. Then I hit stop. This is, uh, I think this is called the opener. Then I'm going to get to the main and it's going to produce and put all these things together and normalize the sound and put music behind it. So I'm just kind of curious uh, what the production content is going to be like. So I thought this would be a good thing to kind of test this whole new building platform on. So this podcast might never see the uh, the light of day. It, uh, it might be just some sort of bonus episode. Um, but uh, with that said, let me get to the content. So uh, on to the opener. Okay, so one of the things that I thought that I would do is is almost kind of take you through if someone first comes into my office and uh, someone's coming in for pornography addiction. And, and I get people in a lot of different states when they come in. Sometimes people have been caught by a spouse or if it's a teenager by their parent, or sometimes it's somebody that just feels like once and you know, once and for all, they, they maybe confess to a religious leader, or they just have always felt like, okay, you know, one more time, this is the last time that I'm going to look, I'm going to stop, I need to stop. Uh, this isn't helping my relationship. It's wasting time. It's wasting money. And uh, so, you know, this is it. So I got to do something. I got to get help. 
And so, so I get people in a variety of, um, when they come into my office in a, in a variety of uh, stages or, or uh, states of mind. And I'm often asked, you know, does that matter? And, and to be fair, I, I do think it matters. It matters a little bit in the sense that here comes, uh, I almost want to keep track of the amount of cliches I'll probably use in trying to talk about this today. But uh, the person has to want to get help. And, and because if they're coming in and they don't even think that they have a problem, and uh, they don't really think it's a big deal. They're coming in as a checkbox item because their spouse told them that they needed to or their parent needed to tell them to. Then, I mean, I, I'm not going to kick them out, but uh, but they do need to have a desire. And and so and sometimes people come in and they even say, look, I, you know, I don't I don't uh, I don't turn to pornography very often. Um, I've, I've got a whole lot of uh, I can put a lot of distance between times where and I'll just use the word relapse. And so I really don't think it's a problem. But but then there are other people that say, that's the problem, is that I get a whole lot of time between a relapse. I think that it's never going to happen again. And then before I know it, I kind of find myself right down that rabbit hole and, and I'm now acting out. And then uh, here comes that uh, tremendous amount of guilt, shame, that sort of thing. So so there's a couple of things that I like to start with when somebody comes in to see me for a session. One of those is that, um, you know, the, the, the quicker that somebody can feel comfortable and really open up and tell me what their experience is like, the better. And I understand that addiction in general is it's a, it's something that drives isolation. So here's something where when somebody maybe has opened up to a spouse or a religious leader, they're typically met with shame. And even from a well-meaning partner, even from a well-meaning uh, religious leader who might say, oh man, you know, I appreciate you coming in, but you know, you realize that's, this is pretty bad stuff. I mean, we really got to put this behind them. And the hard part is that person has, has thought uh, hundreds of times, if not thousands of times that they know that this isn't something that they feel good about or something that they want to continue to do, or they, you know, so when somebody just comes in and says, um, you know, you realize this is pretty bad, right? Then, then the person kind of immediately feels that shame. So they've kind of opened up their heart to being a little bit more vulnerable. They come in and they're finally going to do something about this. And then they're met with the, oh boy, you know, yeah, this is pretty bad. And, uh, and so, and, and I want to kind of say even what I'm, I'm kind of talking today, I'm being a little bit more open. I recognize that when I have a couple in my office that this is difficult because I need to build strength or rapport with the person. We'll just call them the addict for now. And, uh, but I also understand that the spouse oftentimes they've been hurt. I mean, that's that whole concept of betrayal trauma. The, the symptoms of betrayal trauma mimic those of, or not mimic. They are, they are the same type of symptoms as those from PTSD where there are these triggers. Um, the spouse is trying to make sense of the entire relationship. They feel like they've maybe been lied to or duped about everything and uh, don't necessarily see or recognize that the addiction can be just this thing that the person compartmentalizes or this thing that the person, you know, um, brings out when they feel, when they feel bad about themselves or when they feel like this void or they feel like they just need to kind of check out or it's a, you know, it's really a coping mechanism and that when they are not in, you know, acting out that they desperately want the relationship, but at some point, they start to feel this guilt or shame about doing the act, which then makes them withdraw from the relationship. So it's just this vicious cycle. So I want to acknowledge that uh, it does feel a little bit different whether I'm working with an individual or when I'm working with a couple. So I'm going to take today's approach as when I'm working with an individual. So the first thing I like to do is, you know, I, I am thankful that the person has come into my office and it helps if they are the ones that say, all right, I want to do something about this. But even if they're not, I mean, I look at this as, I can do what we call in the, the therapy world, psychoeducational work. I can let them know that I can even let them know that here's what life can look like without pornography in your life at all. And, uh, you know, kind of turn to the data, turn to the, the, the evidence around that. Um, because there's enough there now that is pretty clear that this isn't just a, 
you know, a, a religious uh, issue where people who are, you know, maybe pro Christian or pro church say it's a bad thing and people that aren't say it's fine. Um, there's data now, enough data that uh, kind of coming from the world of divorce that shows that there was a pornography component in over half of all divorces, I think, that I was reading. That was a couple of years ago. So I can only imagine that that's probably um, on the rise. And, I, you know, I've been doing this long enough that I can still remember when we used to say to, to parents, you know, um, it's not a matter of if your kids see it, but when. I remember pretty clearly when that transition occurred. So back to when I have someone in my office, the first thing I want to do is just tell them thank you. And I appreciate just even having this opportunity to talk. And I want them to understand that uh, this is going to be a, lot, a little bit of a process. I'm often asked, how long does it take? If somebody comes in and they really do want to put this behind them once and for all, what are we looking at? You know, a few months, a few years. And uh, and I, I, I've worked with a couple of people that are, I guess I don't even want to know if I, uh, if I, if I bring them up because I, you know, but there's some, there's some data around that shows that, uh, that really putting this behind them once and for all you know, it can be a, it can be a two to three year process. And so I don't know, sometimes people hear that and they're, they think, okay, that's okay. Cause I've got, I got time. I don't have to be perfect tomorrow. But then other people hear that and they think, oh my gosh, you know, that almost causes more stress than, uh, um, you know, th- than they even anticipated. And so that's one of those things that I don't just jump out and say, Hey, thanks for coming in there, champ. You know, uh, you're going to get to know me a lot over the next two to three years as you try to put this behind you. And uh, because sometimes that's not what the client needs. So every client, and here's a, boy, here comes a a bunch of those things that I love to talk about in another podcast. Every client comes to the table with their own, what we call private experiences in the world of acceptance and commitment therapy, my, uh, my modality of choice. Um, What that means is some people are going to hear two to three years and based on what they're, what they've been through, based on their nature, their nurture, their DNA, their upbringing, their attachment issues, their abandonment, if people have maybe died in their lives, if there's been friendships that have disappeared, if they've moved a lot, whatever their experience is, they're going to hear two to three years and it's going to mean something different to the person beside them that hears two to three years. So, so again, um, just knowing that, uh, that, hey, it can take time for some, they can feel like, okay, good. I don't, I don't have to have this figured out tomorrow. And for others, it can uh, it can feel a little bit daunting. But but then one of the other things I like to do is, and if we're taking this from a from a religious standpoint, from a, a view of Christianity, um, and and if we aren't, I mean, still kind of the next part that I like to say is is fairly similar. If you go from the the, the Christian point of view, it's hey, God uh, made man and woman, put us on the earth, and said, replenish, go go forth and replenish the earth. So the fact that we have sexual needs, sexual desires, um, not a bad thing. And so uh, I, and I used to have this line where I would say. Um, you know, I would rather work with the person who is trying to curb that appetite than the person who has absolutely no sexual desires or appetite. But then I realized that that can sound pretty insensitive to somebody if if they if they don't have a uh, any type of kind of sexual drive or appetite for, as maybe one of their factory settings. Somebody maybe who feels like they're more asexual. Um, and my, but my only point by that is I'm trying to let somebody know. It's starting to kind of spread the the word of, um, hey, the shame part is is not really helping us out. So when somebody feels like, what's wrong with me? Well, nothing. You're a human. Um, you're attracted to uh, you're, you're attracted to um, someone else. You're attracted to uh, dependent on your sexual orientation. You're attracted to the same sex. You're attracted to opposite sex. But there is a natural attraction that is built in. So again, whether we go from a from a religious standpoint, um, that's uh, that's one of those things where it's like, all right. Uh, it's, uh, it's who you are. And so um, let's let's go ahead and start getting rid of the shame right there. If you come from a purely um, biological evolutionary standpoint, um, then this this desire in us comes from the need to want to 
to procreate, to, to, you know, express our dominance, you know, to our tribe, to spread our seed, uh, all those kind of things. So the first thing I try to do is get rid of the shame. One of the other things that I like to talk about early on is um, a lot of times people have come to me and it's not the first, I'm not the first person they've come to, to try to overcome this problem. And uh, so, I, you know, I still remember the person who was in my office where I just said, hey, are you like expecting me to have this top secret thing that when I tell you the secret word or handshake or pill or, you know, chant or spell that when I give it to you, then you will finally be able to put the pornography part behind you once and for all? Because if that's the case, then man, I, I apologize. Because, you know, if I had that thing, um, I would, I don't know, I'd be figuring out a better way to sell that uh, magic word or handshake or whatever um, to, to help others and to, uh, you know, to kind of capitalize this uh, world of addiction recovery. But, but I don't. So, um, but here's the thing though, is that I feel like one of the keys to overcoming any kind of addiction, especially pornography addiction, is people come and they come to a therapist or they come to a leader, they turn to their spouse and they basically say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try. And then here's again, the hard part. If I'm working with a couple versus work with an individual, if I'm working with an individual, I'm going to try, but there's a pretty good chance that uh, relapse may be inevitable. And so when the person starts doing the work with the therapist, and then if relapse occurs, we got a couple of things that happen there. One is that the person might be now ashamed to tell their therapist because they're thinking, I'm, I'm coming in there now, I'm paying money and I'm not able to overcome this. So they either one thing, they'll disappear. They stop making appointments or the other, they, they lie to their therapist. They come in and like, you know what? No, I'm doing pretty good. And, uh, you know, the hard part is I haven't done this now 15 years or so, a thousand uh, pornography addicts or more. You just kind of start to pick up on the, you know, really? But uh, but my job is, uh, especially in the beginning, is not to, to try to do anything that will bring that shame. So so there's uh, there's one of the first struggles is that when when somebody is looking for this magic pill bullet or whatever, that alone is something that says, hey, I've tried this before and it hasn't worked. And so um, they come in and basically I feel like they're interviewing the therapist to say, do you got anything new? You know, do you got anything different here? And so so that's one of the things that I kind of like to say. We don't have a magic pill. We don't have a magic bullet. But um, we've got a way to figure this out. And it's a strength-based way that starts with getting rid of the shame. So here's where I go into uh, back to that acceptance and commitment therapy model. So if our goal is to, let's just say if I if the client's goal becomes I, I'm going to put pornography behind me once and for all, whatever that means to them. But I'm, I'm, you know, I want to remove this from my life. Then in the world of acceptance and commitment therapy, watch what the brain will do. The brain does this thing called reason giving, which is uh, maybe a nice way to say the brain starts making excuses. So, so we can say, I'm going to put that behind me, right? And then the brain's going to immediately kind of say, okay, but you've said that before. And so what, what's the brain trying to do there? You know, it's trying to get you, they, they call it to hook onto this thought, to hook onto this story that if you fuse to or you believe this story, then you don't have to do the hard work of saying, I'm going to, I'm going to hang in there. I'm going to do the work. I'm going to put this behind me once and for all. So, so if your brain immediately says that, you know what, you've, you've said this before, or, you know, you are, you are spending a lot of money um, trying to figure this down out, or, you know, I don't know if you open up to this guy, this could be scary. Here's the thing with acceptance and commitment therapy that I love. We're not trying to determine if those stories that your brain's trying to hook you to are true or false. Um, not, you know, let's look at those three stories your brain tried to hook you to. Number one, have you done, have you tried to do this before and it hasn't worked? You bet. You know, that one's true. Is it a productive thought toward you are now working on this goal to put this behind you? 
It's not very productive. It's not a workable thought, they say. Um, what was the second one? That, uh, you know, paying a lot of money for this. True or false? Sure. You know, and even that's relative, depending on how much money someone has or or what they seek. You know, I, I had a, a wonderful um, bishop uh, tell me one time when I had been working with a couple for a while and uh, the, the couple had, had rung up quite a tab that the, the church was paying for. And even to the point where I was starting to feel a little bit guilty and this uh, this bishop said, you know, hey, we'll pay to have somebody's tooth removed, but uh, but what about paying to, ha- to save somebody's marriage? So so sometimes these things are relative as well. So again, true or false story? Is it a lot of money? Maybe, yes, no. You know, we aren't going to go to a court of law and we're not going to get out CPAs and accountants and look over your budget and deem, you know, yes, it is a lot of money. Okay, who cares? Well, is that a workable thought if your goal is to put this behind you once and for all? Um, so, so and, and I think I've forgotten the third uh, story, if I'm being honest with you, I was going to pretend that uh, I'm just very passionate and moving on from it and maybe it'll hit me back in a moment. But so that's what I love about doing the work. That's why I feel like acceptance and commitment therapy is such a strong modality in working toward, um, removing this type of addiction. So we've already addressed that there is no magic pill or bullet. We've also addressed that your brain is going to fight hard to take you down the path of least resistance. If you hook or fuse to one of those stories that, uh, man, I have been here before and it does cost a lot of money and you just run with that thought. Um, you fuse to that thought, you hook to that thought, you know, then you may find yourself saying, ah, it's not even worth it. I don't even want to try. And look what that just happened there. I mean, your brain, bless its heart, is, uh, you know, the book, The Happiness Trap by uh, Russ Harris says it's a don't get killed device. But not only is it a don't get killed device, but the brain thinks that the best thing it can do is try to w- run on low power mode. It thinks that the longer it can do that, um, the longer it's going to live. So, it, it's not very sure about uh, what you're going to be doing if you're going to try to do this hard work of, of getting rid of this uh, this addiction. And uh, so it's going to try to get you down this path of least resistance. And here's the here's the struggle. Here's the challenge is it's also saying, hey, by the way, this path of least resistance also ends in an orgasm that lights up the brain, you know, the reward center of the brain in the similar fashion as does things like uh, cocaine or those sort of things. And P.S., we've got your own supply in your own head. So... Um, the brain's going to fight a little bit hard to try and uh, keep you engaged in this addiction. So, so there are some of the fundamentals. There are some of the early things that we're kind of looking at. Uh, oftentimes, I'll do a little bit of, again, the psychoeducational work. And, and there's enough data now that does kind of show, again, that, uh, that this can be harmful. I like to use the phrase, it warps one's sexuality. And there's a tremendous amount of data now that shows that there's some pretty fascinating things that come from early exposure to pornography. And, and a lot, you know, and chronic masturbation or, or whatever we want to call that. And, and one of those is, uh, erectile dysfunction. The highest group of, uh, folks with erectile dysfunction these days, I believe the stats show 18 to 25 year old men. And why? Why is that the case? And it's because people become just conditioned. Um, this is where I kind of go with that. And warped sounds pretty harsh, but, uh, the sexuality, when it becomes warped, when they know that they can turn to this, um, willing female on the computer screen that is maybe perfect body and is saying all the right things and noises and whatever, then when they get with a real person, a real woman who maybe is having a good day or a bad day, or the date didn't go as well as it should have, or they're so excited that, you know, they don't know what to do with themselves, then they, they can kind of get in their own head. And, uh, and then when they are overthinking the concept of trying to be with someone, a lot of times that can lead to that erectile dysfunction. There's other reasons that can lead to that as well. Um, but typically with older people, that's when you're looking at a lot more diet and exercise, that sort of thing. With the younger people, it's, it can be a pretty uh, solid mindset. So, and here's a good time to step back and take a, a look at that early exposure to pornography. Um, the, the, the research there shows uh, it's about 8 to 11 years old. And I think that that's even tends to start trending younger. 
And, and it's just data. I mean, so that's the part where, you know, if somebody's listening right now and they just pulled off the side of the road with a gasp of horror, um, I understand. But, uh, but man, if you have that gasp of horror and, and that sort of thing in front of someone that maybe is struggling and they're young, you know, hey, welcome to the world of shame. You know, that person is going to have a harder time opening up to you. So, and I know that's a bit of uh, maybe part of just working in this world um, as a profession. But so from that point, uh, what is that? Here's the, here's the speech I'd like to give on sexualization. Um, so when people have been exposed to pornography, now back in the day, we, we called someone being sexualized. It was typically if there had been something like uh, molestation. So, um, or, you know, back in my day, it was, uh, there was no internet, um, you know, the movie channels, if you didn't have the subscription to it, uh, I can't even tell you how many people my age you, you hear, you're flipping through the channels and you get to the, the like the pay channel and it's like fuzzy and it's kind of the lines are going up and down or whatever. And if you sit there and stare at it long enough, you might be able to get a two millimeter um, patch of black and white. You know, was that nudity? You know, that kind of thing. Or somebody in the neighborhood had a magazine. Um, there was someone in my uh, my circles that I ran with. And these were very good, good guys who had uh, got a hold of a magazine and they actually threw a Scouts um, Boys Life cover over it. So it, it appeared like we were very, uh, very interested in scouting um, if that if that magazine was ever brought out. But so that was, you know, in in the grand scheme of things, what we look at now was fairly tame. So now when someone is exposed to pornography early, and especially when they're the graphic images, the videos, that sort of thing. Now we know that that early exposure to pornography kind of equates to sexualization. So so now what I like to say is that uh, if, if that age of first exposure is nine, 10 years old, um, well, what grade are they in? Is that like a fifth, fourth, something, third, fourth grade? So now that person, um, little Timmy, little Timmy sitting there in class, he's, he's seen videos. It's uh, typically, I, and, and I'm apologize when I try to make light of this, but I deal with it so often. Typically that first exposure happens at quote, a cousin's house, you know, and, uh, they, they've seen some video, something like that. And then it does that kind of the excitement, the adrenaline, the heart rate races. Um, they kind of get those feel good chemicals going, even if they're prepubescent, there's still this excitement. And whether it's the feeling of that, I shouldn't be seeing that or whatever it is, it does stir excitement. And, and the bigger challenge, I was going to say problem or issue, but those are dramatic words, is now what that sexualization means is now little Timmy sitting in class. And if his teacher, um, is there, and, and I remember this. I remember, I remember the, the guy who, uh, who was sitting beside me one time. Um, I think it was the, the teacher was a lady named Mrs. Anderson, and we were about in that age. And, and, uh, now I look back on it, and this person had definitely been, um, exposed to, uh, to pornography. I don't know about anything else in their life. But he had said, man, look at Mrs. Anderson's chest. That's what he was basically saying. I can still, I don't know, you know, those, why do we have some of those memories that we do? I remember, sure, look at it. Uh, you know, but she was wearing a ch- uh, shirt, that sort of thing. She was a little bit overweight. And I just remember thinking, I just thought he was saying that she was a little bit overweight. And I was like, I know, right? Isn't that funny? And he didn't respond with, hey, that was funny. So, I mean, so when someone's been exposed early, again, whether it's that viewing of pornography or if it is a, a sexual um you know, the I don't know, sexual abuse, that sort of thing. Now they see the world kind of through a different lens. Now, Mrs. Anderson isn't just Mrs. Anderson, the annoying third grade teacher, but she has curves and, and those sort of things. And so, and if you kind of think about, there's a, there's a talk I love by a guy named um, uh, Dieter Uchtdorf, and he talks about where if you're on a plane and you kind of start off at when you're one degree off course, that over the course of hours of flight, look how far away you are from your destination. And sometimes I like to think in terms of that sexualization kind of starts that person off course. So depending on where that sexualization occurred, how young that was and to what severity or extent, now you can see that the plane kind of starts to head off course at that point. So sometimes when we're addressing it and when they're in their 20s or 30s or that sort of thing, 
their their sexuality can be pretty far off course. Now, also here enters the uh, the Coolidge um, effect. And uh, I should know this story um, in and out. I used to talk about it all the time. I've got a podcast episode on the Coolidge effect. But what the Coolidge effect said, it had something to do with um, uh, President Coolidge and his wife were touring, I believe as the story goes, a, a, a farm that uh, had chickens or something like that. Um, they walked the president by the, this rooster and the, they gave him the, the facts that this rooster mated however many times a day, you know. And uh, so then I think he said something. The, the story goes that he said something to the helper, you know, hey, make sure you tell that. To me. Oh, he says, uh, make, sure, yeah, make sure you tell that to Mrs. Coolidge. Mrs. Coolidge comes by later in the tour and uh, is given that information that this rooster can mate several times a day. And, and so, no, you know what? It might be backwards. I should have done the research before. But, but in essence, what the, it was like, uh, you know, one, one uh, female, um, no, no. So I think it was backwards. No, sir, multiple females. Okay, tell that to Mrs. Coolidge or something like that. But the point being that the, what the Coolidge effect is, and it's been observed in, uh, in a, a number of, um, of animals, is you, it started with rats. So you put a rat in a cage and you give him a willing female. He will mate with her. Then he will not mate with her again. You put another willing female in the cage. He will mate with her. Then he will not mate with either of the, the two again a third and so on until basically he will, he will mate with them to death. I don't know if he runs out of a uh, little mouse bodily fluids or he has a heart attack or whatever it is. But so that's the Coolidge effect. Now, how does that come into, into place with pornography? That kind of speaks to this fact that, you know, if we kind of go back in time, our brains were designed and, and we were anticipating finding the one true love, the one woman. So when we would see this woman, our brain would go crazy and pouring out dopamine saying, you've got to get her, you know? And so then when we would get her, then we would uh, mate and live happily ever after. The problem is that pornography is starting to, you know, game that whole system. So what the brain does is it pours out a bunch of dopamine when it sees on the screen this willing female. But here comes another willing female with the next click and another willing female. And so each time the brain's like, oh my gosh, more dopamine, more dopamine. So you're blasting these dopamine neuroreceptors and just frying them. And so with the the dopamine receptors blasted, uh, then the next time it's like, okay, I need more. I need something more. And so over time, what the Coolidge effect kind of kind of leads to is that people start to amp up what they are watching. They need more. They need things to be more, you know, and they can be more twisted or more violent or more, you know. And, and so that's what kind of sets people down this path of warping their sexuality. So by the time that they get with a real partner, they aren't necessarily just, you know, looking at the things they looked at as a child where it might have just been a naked girl or whatever. Now it's their, their they need this, just this, whatever this thing is that uh, will provide them enough of the dopamine rush. So that really can be one of the big challenges. So that's the Coolidge effect. So once we kind of have this world of psychoeducational um, data to work with, then I like to start working on, all right, what are we going to do now? So one of the things I really like to talk about is this habit cycle. And in my my program, The Path Back, uh, this is something that all, you know, we talk about all of these things. But so the habit cycle really just simplistically says there's a there's a trigger, then you have a thought, and then you have an action. So, and the triggers in olden days, all we try to do is get rid of the triggers, get rid of the triggers, you know, trigger. But the hard part is the more we kind of realize that, that what this sexual addiction is or what, what this addiction looks like is that the triggers aren't just, you know, keep him out of the gym, don't let him see cleavage. The triggers are, I call them, um, you know, one of the main ones I call it a crime of opportunity. It's boredom or, or it's opportunity. So a good example of this is somebody that they would take their kids to school, their wife would go to work. They had about a two hour window before they had to go to work. And so crime of opportunity, they pull back up to the house and the brain with that trigger, here comes the thought. The thought is I could totally act out, you know, 
And then here comes the action of the person kind of starting to act out. So in the, in the long game, what we're trying to do is, I mean, if we can eliminate triggers, great. You know, so in that scenario, um, that guy, he just started going to work early. I think he, I mean, he started going, he went somewhere where he would uh, do some reading or study or maybe in the parking lot of his, of his office, started doing some mindfulness or meditation, that sort of daily scripture study, that sort of thing. But so really eliminating that trigger was a very positive thing. But we always, we, we can't always be in a spot where we can eliminate triggers. So, so what, where the real work becomes is putting distance between that thought and action. So, um, the, the, and I'll tell you, spoiler alert, the, the most evidence-based way to put that distance between thought and action is this concept of mindfulness. You hear about it a lot. Now, how does mindfulness work in that situation? Let me take a step back. Well, actually, let me take two steps back. So while we're going to start working on this mindfulness component, meanwhile, the mindfulness thing takes a little while. A lot of people don't buy into it. It does take a little while to train the brain. And again, I'll explain that here in a second. But so the first thing that we have to do is put some behavioral techniques in, some behavioral mechanisms in. Um, there's There are programs that say whenever you have that, you know, that there's that trigger and there's that thought. There's one that I love for youth where it says, run out and touch a mailbox. You know, well, it's not about touching the mailbox. It's a behavioral pattern that is trying to break up that trigger thought action routine. So I have people that do, they literally get down and do pushups. They go on walks around the, the block. When I have people in my path back program working on this relapse prevention program, you are identifying a list of things that you can do. But here's the problem of those things that you can do. Um, there are going to be times where you maybe don't have access to the things you are confined, you, you know, and that's the whole point where all along the way in a perfect world, we get rid of the triggers In a perfect world, we can go do some behavioral thing and, uh, and then we feel the success, but where the, again, the, the most evidence-based modalities around changing your relationship with your thoughts of pornography, being able to step back and saying, okay, I just recognize the trigger. Here's a thought and being able to step back and say, okay, I see what you're doing there, brain. You know, you're, you're trying to lure me down that path. You're trying to, you're trying to tell me that story of this is inevitable. You know, you're, you're going to do it anyway. You might as well do this. And so here's where the mindfulness co- component comes in. The hard part is when somebody starts to work with me and I, I try to get them to just start to embrace a mindfulness practice. I'm a huge fan of this app called Headspace. I know there's one called Calm that I've tried as well. That's really good. But here's, here's what happens with mindfulness. So when somebody is starting to get into this habit cycle, when there's that trigger there, and then they have that thought, their heart rate starting to elevate. You know, they're starting to kind of just go into this autopilot. They're starting to get this excitement. They're starting to kind of go into this, uh, this mode where they're heading toward acting out. So the mindfulness component, when you, when you're doing a daily mindfulness practice, the first thing it does is, is it literally does have you, you know, sit up straight back against the chair. And it really is like, in through the nose, out through the mouth, breathing. I used to think that that wasn't very important or I would tell people, make sure you take some breaths, but I didn't get the the science behind it. Because what you're doing is when you're doing that in through the nose, out through the mouth breath, you are you are lowering your heart rate. And if you can lower your heart rate, you're signaling to your brain, hey, I think we're good. You know, I don't think we need to amp up. I don't think we need to get the adrenaline going. I think we got this. But a daily mindfulness practice, the one headspace that I love is you kind of do that breathing. You get yourself kind of nice and calm. You do a little bit of a body scan. He's got you thinking about your back against the chair, your butt on the seat, your feet on the ground. And all that's doing is while you're focusing on those things, you're not thinking about acting out. You're not thinking about something else. So sometimes over time that just turning to the breath, doing the body scan, those are going to be enough to get you out of your head of thinking about that acting out. Um, over time, there's some cool science that says about eight minutes a day for eight weeks of uh, mindfulness practice start to kind of reroute the neuropathways of the brain. So it literally does become something that becomes almost just instinctive. When you get triggered um, and you have that thought it, it, over time, and this is the part that I wish I could just impress on somebody that they would believe uh, early on, 
why this mindfulness practice is so key. But when they when they turn to that breath, when they when they do kind of just get themselves centered or grounded or present, over a few weeks of time of doing this, the brain goes, ah, this guy's no fun. I know what he's doing with this. He's not going to let us do anything fun. And so it just kind of it taps out. It's like, all right, well, let's go ahead and do the thing that he wants to do then focus on his work or his kids or something like that. So the daily mindfulness practice becomes imperative because, you know, even if it isn't something that we turn to in the beginning, if we have to do those uh, behavioral things, we're going to get to that point in the end. And here's the fun part. Uh, let's go back to that world of acceptance and commitment therapy. How many of those uh, stories is the brain telling as you're hearing this? That stuff's lame. That's for hippies. I don't want to grow a ponytail. You know, no offense to people with ponytails, but you know that I, I I shouldn't have to do that, or I don't have to. I don't have to go that far because your brain's trying to hook or fuse you to these these stories so that you don't have to do the work. And I understand that. Then I go back to my role as therapist. Somebody doesn't do the mindfulness. They come in. Yeah, I acted out again. I haven't done the mindfulness yet. I'm just grateful they're being honest because that is one of the keys to overcoming this addiction. This addiction is just ripe with dishonesty and people that are, you know, telling someone, no, I'm doing good. I'm doing great. Where then, and then inside they're going, crap. Yeah, I, I messed up again, but I can't tell that person because I'm going to let them down. And here comes that shame. And so, which just feeds the addiction cycle. So I like when somebody's coming in and I mean, I like if they're telling me that they're doing all the work and stuff, but I like when they come in and say, yeah, you know, I haven't done, I haven't done the mindfulness. I haven't really done any, you know, read much of the stuff you're doing. I'm not trying to get my diet in order or my health. And, and I almost feel like that's that story of, so now what are you going to do, Mr. Therapist? Can you go ahead and tell me I'm broken so I can go ahead and, and leave and uh, like I've done with other therapists or other programs and go back to relapse and, and uh, that sort of thing. And I'm sorry. That's what I love about acceptance and commitment therapy. Not going to work that way. It's like, okay, I see what your brain trying to do. Your brain's trying to hook you to the see I'm broken story. Yeah, it doesn't work in my dojo. You know, thanks for that data. And now with that data, what do we do? What's beautiful about acceptance and commitment therapy is if you haven't done the mindfulness in two weeks, guess what? When you finally remember that, your brain's going to blast you with the look, dummy, you know, you're not even doing the work. And, and over time, you're able to, they call it uh, self as context in the world of acceptance and commitment therapy. You're able to step back from yourself, get context there and go, aha, now I see that that's what that's happening. That my brain's trying to fuse me to this I'm broken story or I'll never get this story. And guess what? Not productive thoughts. They're just not productive thoughts. Normal, you bet, but not productive thoughts. And part of this entire process, just like with that mindfulness and training the brain is learning how to recognize those patterns of behavior or patterns of thought that got us right back into the addiction. So, so that's some of the, the kind of really fascinating stuff. And, and a quick note on acceptance and commitment therapy. And I've said this on a few podcasts as well. Another thing I love about it is if you're really doing some good acceptance and commitment therapy work, maybe with a, a good therapist in that area, you're going to go over your values. And, and let me just t- tell you why this is important. We all have different values. It goes back to that because of that we are the only person who is brought up and has the experiences that we have. So what a lot of people do is they set goals that are based on someone else's values or values that they think that they're supposed to have. I'll give you an example that comes up a lot when people are doing things like scripture study. If they want that to be a part of their lives, they might say, I need to sit down and read my Bible for 15 minutes a day. But if their core values are around, I don't know, adventure, excitement, uh, uh, learning, those sort of things, then just linearly reading scripture that doesn't speak to them then doesn't necess- isn't necessarily as fulfilling. And so then when they get to the end of that 15 minutes, if they get to the end of that 15 minutes and they feel like that didn't work, or then they get to go back to that what's, what, what's wrong with me story. And we're going to get rid of the what's wrong with me story because guess what? You're, you're you. Nothing's wrong. We're just trying to figure things out. So in acceptance and commitment therapy, and this is a very true story because it is my story. Um, I was that guy that was trying to like, all right, I know I need to read my scriptures every day, but my ADD would go all over the place. You know, I wasn't raised in a religious, uh, I used to make all these excuses. That's because I didn't really have this as a kid or whatever it was. 
but no, I mean, you know, the, the way my brain works, the things that, that matter, my personal values are more around this just learning and growth and adventure and being authentic. And so I remember the first time I'm reading some New Testament stuff and I think, what? Like, okay, those are, like, what are they wearing? Were they barefoot? I mean, you hear about like Jesus sandals, you know, people will talk about that. What were those? So all of a sudden I'm on this, I'm Googling, uh, what do they wear back in the day? What were the roads like? That sort of thing. And then all of a sudden, instead of 15 minutes of, of something that then I feel like I failed at or I didn't get anything from, I did 30 minutes of just, you know, going on these, just learning more about the people of the time, which then actually shockingly made me want to go back and, all right, now I'm going to read the, that same passage with the context. And it just kind of came alive. It really was something different or important to me. So even when we're setting goals around like the recovery, we're doing them based on your values. What's important to you? Um, another example I've given on other podcasts is just, you know, you have to do this as an individual as well, because if you're sitting in a room with your spouse, or let's say it's even with a, a church leader or a parent, and you get to this, uh, the value of honesty. So I, I will tell this, I once had a client who had two, um, I would say fairly narcissistic parents who just spun every story and who knows what way. And the person just didn't even know what to say. So to him, honesty was a value. Honesty was to be had above all. But I have had another client who grew up where the family just was just barked out what he called brutal honesty, and it did not go well. You know, yeah, you do look fat. I hate that food, you know, whatever. And so he's like, I'm sorry, but to me, honesty means something different. You know, welcome to the world of private experiences. So that word honesty is going to hold, it's a different value for different people based on the situations that they've, they've had in their lives. So part of this as we're doing this habit cycle is we're trying to like um, put distance between thought and action. We, you know, there's this mindfulness component, there's these goals that we set, but but it is key to know that part of this entire journey of putting this addiction behind you once and for all is recognizing it is, it's, here it comes a cliche, but it's it's learning how to have this just life that you want, that you, that you, that you never felt you could have. And that life includes understanding your values and setting goals based on your values. I believe that if a, if a goal is not based on your value, then it just becomes a rule, a rule that you are inevitably not going to keep. And then you get to go back to that what's wrong with me story. When the brain hears the what's wrong with me story, it just says, we've got this. We know what to do. You know, let's let's go give him a quick hit of dopamine. Sure, he'll have a little bit of shame, but, uh, you know, at least we're going to kind of get him out of this uh, this feelings of negativity. When somebody is living an authentic life, and this is where I go back to that, I feel like addiction at its core is about a void. So you sure you've got the sexualization early. That's the data that we're working with. But then that that sexualization or this addiction can lead to isolation and people feeling shame and the what's wrong with me story. And then they don't feel as connected to their spouse if they're married. Uh, maybe they're in a job that they don't care about. Maybe they don't feel like they're a good parent. Maybe they aren't very comfortable or, or have questions about their faith. Maybe they don't have the health that they always wanted. And so all of those things play into this void. So I can do the behavioral things. Go touch the mailbox. Do the push-ups. Um, we're going to start working on the mindfulness component so that you can start to realize, I see what you're doing, brain. You're trying to hook me to this. I got to act out now or I'm going to do it later anyway story, or this is the last time story or, or whatever that is. So I get that. But, but then if you are then working toward being authentic in all of these other areas, there's a lot of things that happen there. Number one, when you're feeling authentic in your marriage, you want to be in your marriage more. When you feel like you know what you're doing as a parent, you're ready to go play catch or hang out with the kids more. When you are working toward your dream job or even a, are working your values into your current job, your job looks different. You know, if you're, and if you're looking at, I mean, back to the acceptance commitment therapy thing, let's go to the one with health. You know, hey, I, I could talk about running a, I ran 12, 13, 100 mile races. I can give a nice motivational speech where somebody in the crowd is going to be like, I'm doing it. You know, I'm, I'm going to do that too. 
And then immediately the brain goes, you know, uh, you don't even have any shoes. You don't have a training program. You know, all the races are far away. You know, and your brain goes nuts trying to get you to fuse to one of those stories. So you don't actually have to start looking into what it would take to, you know, ramp up the running ultra marathons and hundred mile races and that sort of thing. So I only say that because the brain's just trying to, again, it's trying to just chill as the kids say, it's trying to keep you locked into the, where you're at right now. So, so, um, where are we, where are we at now in summary, trying to become a more authentic. So, uh, if you are, if you are just all about your, you're trying to figure out what's right for you health wise, you know, exercise wise. Um, if, if you're feeling like, okay, I'm going to go get marriage therapy. I'm going to figure out how to be a better husband. Um, if the, if our, my relationship isn't good, then on it, let's fix this thing and, and start watching what the brain, those stories, the brain's going to tell and, and recognizing that I don't have to hook to one of those stories because I, I want this change or, you know, working your values into your job. I, I've got super cool examples of that. I mean, one of the most simplistic, basic ones. So I'm not talking about corporate CEOs, although I've, I've worked with those too, but it was just a kid that was working at McDonald's and uh, he didn't like the, you know, he's working on the grill and he's miserable. And then we do the values exercise and we, uh, you know, one of his is like, I think it was self improvement. Um, maybe that was one of his core values. And so then he just said, all right, you know what? During my breaks, I'm going to ask uh, the manager how you do whatever, the fries. I'm going to ask him how you do the drink machine. I'm going to ask him, and so he did that. So then he felt more, you know, sure, he spent a lot of time still on the grill, but then he felt like he was learning more, the self-development and honestly worked his way up in within a summer and he was making a couple bucks more an hour and just found fulfillment and people were telling him, you're the man. There was so much good about that of him living his value. And so you can work your values even into a job that you don't necessarily care about. Or man, I can uh, do a story someday on that. I mean, I was uh, 10 years in software. It was provided, it provided fine financially, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't really scratching that itch, uh, that value-based itch. So, so we put all those pieces together. We're aware of the, the sexualization. Uh, you know, we kind of have all that awareness. We're putting the mindfulness component in. We're letting the person know that you're, there's not, you're not, you're not a horrible person. You know, this is something that, that happens, you know, it, it, it I, sometimes there's this world called narrative therapy where you're saying you're the good person, but then here comes this cloud of whatever pornography, negativity that descends upon you when you aren't, you know, doing this self-care things, when you aren't being as authentic, those sort of things. So, so we're, we're going to get you back to you being a good person. Will relapse happen? There are times with, that I work with people that they don't, I, I'll be honest, and it's pretty rare, but there are times. Um, but, but so if it happens, then we just got data to work with. We're not going to fuse to the holy cow, what, what happened story. Um, it's going to be like, there's data. I see what, I see where my mind was going. I see what my mind hooked to. We're going to work on things like avoiding what they call benders, avoiding just immediately turning back to the addiction saying, well, this day's over. Might as well act out a whole bunch or this weekend's over because those are just those lies or stories the brain tells you. So, you know, you start getting a world of you get somebody with two or three weeks where they haven't acted out. Then they have one slip up. They get out of there quick. Then they go back to, you know, four weeks of, of non, you know, not acting out. And all of a sudden now you got seven weeks. You got one mess up. Sorry, I hit the microphone there. Um, but, and that's something we can build on. That's a strength-based thing. I think I'm going to call this a uh, part one. Um, and we're going to see if this even works and try to put this uh, episode together. But, uh, part two, we'll kind of talk a little bit more about kind of the long-term recovery. We'll talk about things like harm reduction and, uh, and, uh, you know, if, if you have any questions, if I, this one does hit, hit the light of day, shoot them over to me at contact at tonyoverbay.com. Hey, thanks for uh, taking a few moments here. There's, <laughs> there's a couple of things on this program that I'm testing. One of them, I think, says an outro or whatever. And uh, so I might, you might hear me come back on and say, thanks again. But uh, thanks for spending the time. Um, people really, really can put this behind them once and for all. And uh, I look forward to uh, hearing your thoughts, your comments, questions, that sort of thing. 
Okay, so the program I'm working with, uh, this is the closer portion. I think I'm going to skip the outro, so I should have maybe thought this thing through a little more logically. But for the closer, uh, thanks for joining me today. Um, I, I have to tell you a real quick experience there. I recorded and about it's, I think it's 30, 40 minutes of, uh, of recording there that I just did. And then um, the, it was just saying that it was uploading the file for, for quite a while. And I started to panic thinking, oh my gosh, I didn't do a backup. What did I even just say? Um, but so it looks like all is well. So uh, this is the closer. Thanks for joining me today on the virtual couch. I do look forward to, I'm going to put out a, a episode, um, a second part to this. Uh, maybe we'll do that in a week or so. And and please send questions, even with what you've heard now or questions that you've uh, had about uh, pornography addiction, compulsive sexual behavior, all those sort of things. Because I realize there's a lot of stuff I probably didn't get to because I was just trying to go off the cuff. Um, but send those questions to contact at TonyOverbay.com. And if you have a second, stop by uh, TonyOverbay.com and just sign up there to hear more about some things that are coming up. There's a lot of really cool stuff coming up. And uh, also um, follow uh, follow me on Instagram at Virtual Couch or on Facebook at Virtual Couch. There's a Facebook page or Tony Overbay Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. And uh, if you if you have a moment, I would just be forever in your debt to uh, to rate and review and subscribe to um, the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. That's kind of the the currency of podcasts these days as the ratings and the subscriptions and that sort of thing. So um, I honestly, from the bottom of my heart, appreciate that if you uh, if you haven't done that and you have a second to do so. Um, but until next time, I'll uh, talk to you again on the virtual couch.